The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. Thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today, I'm here with my guest, Vanjie Dennis. Vanjie, are you ready to share with some quality people? I'm going to give it my best, Jarvis. <laughs> well, I wouldn't ask for any more than that, and I know you're going to absolutely <laughs> knock it out of the park. Um, Vanjie, we love to start every show with positive affirmations to really get our momentum going. So I'd love if you could share a favorite leadership quote or a leadership mindset, but also tell us why it appeals to you and how you apply it on a daily basis. Okay. I have one of my favorites. In fact, um, I'm run for and won several national offices within my professional organization. This is one I usually close with in a lot of, of my speeches. And it's a quote by John Kabat-Zinn. And it comes from a book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. And that's the truth. You think you can leave somewhere else, but you're going to find yourself there um, with the same uh, beliefs and, and, and core um, thoughts of leadership or people when you go to that that place. So I put, here's his quote. It says, uh, in the end, it is life itself, which is the mountain, serving us up perfect opportunities to do the inner work of growing in strength and wisdom. We show others what we have seen up to now. It's at best a progress report, a map of our experiences, by no means the absolute truth. We're all on this mountain together, and we need each other's help. If we embrace the journey fully, and you will get what you want and what you need. So I, I love that quote. And, I mean, it, it was a great quote, but even just the, the very last words, if you embrace, embrace what you want, you'll get what you need. Um, I love that mindset. That, that yeah. puts me in a good spot for uh, the start of our conversation, for sure. Well, thank you. So, Vanjie, let me move you to the next um, question here. And, you know, as I was just sharing with you, you are the first official um, surgical services, perioperative services leader that we've had on the podcast. So I'm really excited just to um, expose this side of healthcare to our audience. Um, it's something that I've lived in. You know, we, we've crossed paths several times in, in, over the last couple of years. Um, surgical services, perioperative, I mean, it's the lifeblood for most healthcare organizations. So really looking forward to this conversation with you, but I'd love if you could share with our folks, um, you know, what's your current role, professional background, and absolutely what led you into this career path? Okay. Well, my current role, um, and I seem to go the hard way up, but um, I, I love what I do. I absolutely love nursing, but I'm an assistant vice president for peri-op services. And, and I, I just 
decided to do a turnabout. It was just all of a sudden following my heart. And I took this role from an executive director um, in the Atlanta area and moved on to, to the lake. It's a pretty big county in Anderson, South Carolina, uh, and the hospital, I have three of them. I have a main medical center that's got a wide range of services, including open heart. It's a level three um, trauma center, and I have a second hospital, and it does a combination of 23-hour observations, some inpatient, and then I have a third little hospital about 45 minutes away. So perioperative services for those individuals who don't, don't do not understand that model. It's not just the operating room. It is the complete circle of care when a patient has surgery. So that could be pre-assessment, that is the pre-op area, that is the intra-op area, uh, the post-op area, and following that patient home to make sure the care of events has met the quality and the outcomes needed to get that, that individual on the road to wellness. So it's the full service of care. Um, and that's my current role, assistant vice president. Uh, my my professional background, well, uh, I did the long, hard road. Um, I, w- I can remember, you know, shortly after high school, I was going to major in art. And, of course, being that baby boomer, first thing my mom said is, oh, you're going to starve. You know, that was, that was very typical of that generation. Be a teacher. And, it, and nursing was not something that I thought about in, until – I think one day I was in DePaul DePaul Hospital. It was in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm from Virginia Beach. And I saw this nurse with her staunch white cap and her white hose and her clinic white nursing shoes and the smell of alcohol in the hospital, which you don't see that type of projection of healthcare today. And I thought, wow, I think I want to do that. And what I did was as I became a nursing assistant, from there, I was a licensed practical nurse. Um, from there, as I practiced as a practical nurse for close to three years, I re- realized that I was hitting a glass ceiling and I and I wanted to do more. So I proceeded to go into school, collect some courses out at Georgia State University, finished up with my BSN. And like uh, most organizations, as I began to change my career from uh, a clinical coordinator, staff nurse, and, and wanted to make a bigger difference in healthcare, uh, I went back and got my master's. And um, right now, I'm actually moved from an executive director uh, to an assistant vice president, where I felt like I could make a difference in that role. Um, well, I, I kind of talked about what led me into the path. I mean, basically, um, it, it, it's a purpose for me. It's not just, you know, learning anatomy and physiology. This is how you you do a gallbladder procedure. And this is what we do in standard of care and uh, what we call recommended guidelines. Uh, I think my driver is, is a purpose to make a difference. And um, I think a lot of nurses are kind of wired that way. It's that belief. Um, and what they're doing is taking care of ind- individuals, whether it's been something that prompt them in the early part of their life. But um, I-, I love seeing that outcome when a situation gets better for the general population or even a situation gets better for the staff or patient. Wonderful. And I mean, I- I'll double down, Vanjie, just in my um conversations with you. I've always just seen a leader and someone that's incredibly passionate, just not about nursing, but about the patients, their families, their well-being. You've always put 
you know, everything first. So I just want to commend you on um, just being a one heck of a leader. Um, that's that's really been my experience with you over the past few years. Um, I, I love if you could share with us, Vanjie, you know, when we talk about surgical services and perioperative services, all, all aspects of it from, you know, like you said, pre-admit testing all the way down to decontam and SPD areas, um, can you just kind of highlight the importance of quality throughout all of the different areas that you are leading? Um, because again, we're talking about an area that's known for driving revenue for hospitals, but it's also an area that's absolutely essential for driving high quality. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful uh, focus because we are so focused with the impact of dwindling reimbursement and payer mix um, with um payer mix with the impact on um, what that drives as far as the type of things that we utilize in, in surgery or taking care of a patient. But I think you get to a point where with cost negotiations, and we're always going to try to be costly and got to ask yourself, can you live with it? Is it going to make situations better? But I think you get to a point of diminishing returns where you've negotiated costs so much, the only thing left to negotiate is quality. And those quality measures, as I said, do not segregate out into service lines, just SPD. They have their own and just surgery has their own. They're very symbiotic. Those are silos. It's the full continuum of care. And each one of those quality metrics kind of hooks into the other within perioperative services. A great example I can give you is when we're in surgery. I don't want to get too technical with the surgical men, but if in the surgical role, during and after the case, or even before the case, that the assessment is not done correctly on the instruments because SBD might not have caught a situation, that can create a horrific uh, infection to that patient. Or maybe at the end of the case where the staff did not put the focus on maintaining uh, the, the care and cleansing of the instruments at the end, by the time it gets to the process and you can't clean it good, and then that creates a vicious cycle. So the all the departments, from the preoperative assessment, knowing uh, what that patient's comorbidities are. Uh, Maybe this patient has got several uh, hip prostheses and that may affect how we position them in surgery. All these departments are very symbiotic for the total care of the patient. So I I do believe cost is important. We, We don't want to lose money, then we can't care for our patients. But you get to a point where you've negotiated all you can do, you can't compromise technology And that means you got to hold your quality standards up. And if it means spending a little more money to maintain those quality metrics, then that's what we do. Perfect. Nope. I love it. Um, And, you know, between that and especially for any of our healthcare leaders that plug in with this uh, podcast, if you're not familiar with the operations down in perioperative services, I mean, it it is such a process rich environment, such a, a data rich environment. So there's a lot of um, opportunities to just plug in, to learn. Um, just in my experience, I mean, I've had the chance to sit in on cases that I never would have imagined, you know, being an engineer, not a clinical person, but um, open heart cases and orthopedic cases, and just to understand what all of our different caregivers go through just to make care happen down in perioperative services. So fantastic place, uh, fantastic overview of Angie. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So that's a good point, um, Jarvis. Absolutely. One does not, the success of one does not mean it's going to be successful to the other unless it all comes together in the full circle of that patient care. 
Absolutely. Well, Benji, let me let me move you down to my next question. And just a heads up, this is um, a question we've been calling the dark place question because okay. I, <laughs> I love to uh, get you to, to share a story with us um, connected with your best moment of failure as a healthcare leader. But you know, take us through the moment, tell us a story, but most importantly, tell us the major lessons learned that you gained from that moment. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that is a very difficult question, most definitely, but I don't think there's any of us that have been a leader, and I surely don't believe you're a leader by name. A leader is when somebody wants to follow you, but um, back to that best moment of failure. Um, I have a tendency, and, and I've taken uh, some of those tests, strength finders. I know most of our audience is very familiar with it, but I, I have what, the, what characteristic is called the woo. And I love people and I try to engage people. So I lead with my heart uh, in most situations, which is possibly my gut, trying to see the best side of an individual. So I I think what I did at one point in my career is I just absolutely um, made what I thought was a great choice. I believed in an individual. And you've got to put strong leaders in place to bring what I call that symbiotic um, care to our patient. And I led with my heart. And at that point, I, I, I was blinded to not make good decisions on that individual. In fact, that specific individual did not pass any of the management tests. And going against my HR person, as well as my chief, OO, chief operating officer, I said, well, I want to take a chance on this. I'm going to go with my gut. Well, well that gut was failure, actually. And and it created a almost like a tsunami within the management team. So I, I felt like um, at that point um, I, I didn't make such a good choice that could have crippled um, a, a service line. And it, you take that burden on yourself. What could you have done better? What could you do to recognize? In fact, I had somebody say, "Well, what would you do to recognize something like that again?" I, I think instead of always leading with my heart, I have to sit back and lead with some of my logic too. And that logic incorporates the the wisdom that hopefully I've gained in my career over the last forty years. So it's a balance. It's not always leading with your heart. Kind of take your heart and your gut into consideration, that intuitive drive, but you've got to also sit back and look at the other measurements that may lead you to failure when you think you're going to succeed. Now, that's very insightful, and um, it, it really takes me back to a point in my career where, where I've been in positions of hiring people. Um, the first couple of teams that I had a chance to build, um, unfortunately, my first two hires didn't pan out as well as I thought, and it it actually made me very uh, gun shy, so to speak, from the next mm-hmm. round of team members that I hire. But it really did force me to kind of settle back and think about my leadership and management philosophies and principles. And then I started, that was kind of my logic that I started building behind it to bump up, you know, future candidates with those principles that I finally sat down and kind of laid out in terms of what I want, what I don't want, and so forth. Um, from your experience, Vanjie, would would you say like would your 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 logic process of kind of gone down a similar path, just kind of building up the leadership principles that you wanted to to really set the standards for? Is that kind of how you did it, or or what were the approaches maybe that that kind of helped you put the logic in place that still balanced well, with that, I, that leading I, with the heart? Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I let, I let my heart take the lead. I'm not saying don't let your heart take the lead because your gut can give you a good feeling. 
about things because what um, I, I said this when I worked when in hospital system years ago when I had an individual and oh my gosh and she just too erotic, erratic in the rooms and blah blah blah. In short, we took her out of that position, put her in another position, and she actually excelled. So you never want to cut what you can untie. And I stole that from Catherine Hepburn, by the way. Never cut what you can untie. So that untying is your your heart, but you've got to know when you reach the point of diminishing returns and to let it go. So that's where that logic kicks in. And it needs to be a little bit of balance of both, just like you said. So what that lesson taught me is to read some of the signs a little earlier and maybe uh, see what others' perspectives that are in leadership role that are in that hiring process with you because um, we're not an assembly line of cars, putting cars together. We're in the people business, and that makes a big, big difference where you have to even be more due diligent uh, as you choose to uh, to grow teams and put teams together because – they're the foundation of your success as a leader. Great, fantastic. And uh, I love that additional mindset just to wrap that up. And I love that that's in. I never heard it, even if it was from the, the classic Catherine Hepburn, but don't cut what you can untie. I love it. So uh, let's uh, dig up out of the dark place uh, with this next question I have for you, Vanjie. But I'd love if you could share with our quality people a tip, tool, or tactic that you found works really well for building intimate connections with the teams that you've led. Um, share with us what it is and how do you apply it. Thank you. Uh, I think when you're going to make a change in process, you've got to consider the type of culture you're going in first. I'll give you an example. I'm three months into this job, and I said, All right, you know what? I'm going to do the 90-day rule. I've read books. I'm going to stop and listen. I'm not making any changes. I'm going to learn the culture of this new organization. And lo and behold, no more than a month afterwards, it was as if they were starved for that change. And they said, we need to do this, this, and this. I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I told my COO, I said, I promise you I'm not making any changes. And we had, we, they wanted changes. So with that kind of, of embracing uh, a new person coming in, I use some of the same tactics that I've used in hospitals that I've employed with 25 years, I think total of seven years with Emory uh, Health System and then uh, with Wellstar. I'm, I'm very big on, I don't come in uh, with an autocratic transsectional type of leadership. Um, I'm very much a believer of a shared governance and an appreciative inquiry. So the first and foremost is I never consider any situation or a recommendation dumb. You can get all kinds of really neat ideas with an appreciative inquiry. And everybody's voice is heard. Uh, and in fact, on my introduction, uh, when I first met all the different departments, I said, I want you to know the first will be last and the last will be first. And that's very biblical, which means I'm no different. If a patient asks me to do something, I stop what I'm doing and I go do it. And I expect it from EVS all the way up to my charge nurses, to my directors. So it's that shared governance model and appreciative inquiry. I do believe when you get that type of engagement, you can almost put anything into place, and there, in, whether it's the evaluation of a, of a quality goal, you get everybody's buy-in. It's not one person's idea. And when people have buy-in, they're empowered to make that change and drive those goals. Oh, that's wonderful. And let me, let me pick your, your brains on that one a little bit more too, Brangie, because um, that, that 
concept and that culture of building appreciative inquiry, inquiry um, can you share with us just any, any thoughts for any of our listeners who, you know, if this is their first times kind of hearing that mindset or, or that concept, where, where do leaders begin to even start to uh, embrace that or embody that as they want to figure out how to apply it and use it within their teams? Any, any additional thoughts you can share on that? Yeah, I, I think um, what we have to remember when you're meeting a team, they're going to base their acceptance of you if you're a leader based on their history. And that's kind of what I got here. And I could, I, I go and talk to them in the room and they all just look at me. And I finally, I noticed that when I had my first management group and, and I, I knew my director a little longer than the rest of them because through our, my own professional organization and I'm going, what is going on here? Why don't they talk or say anything? And they said, everything has changed here dramatically in the last year, new C-suite uh, reorganization. And she said, they were, were, their culture was not to speak um, up. Their, their culture was to be told what to do. So I had to often change their perception of what leadership is. Um, I think the biggest key core indicator that does that is the word trust. Uh, you've talked about trust factors, improved uh, employee engagement. It all circles around trust. When people trust you and whether you're wor- what you're telling them is positive or negative, at least they know their destiny. It's no different than sitting at the airport and saying, well, the plane's going to be late 20 minutes. And then the next thing you know, you're an hour later with no communication. At least they know the destiny of where they're going. But trust is one of the most important things in engaging your team to drive us to the next level of quality and engagement. Great. Fantastic. I love it. Um, let me move you to the next question. And, and in this one, Vanjie, I'd love if you could share with us your best aha moment that you've had as a healthcare leader. But again, share with us the story. But um, most importantly, if you were able to turn it into a personal or a professional success. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's great because that tells a little bit about my journey in my life. I think my aha moment um, it, it was when I, I realized I'd reached a glass ceiling. I'm an educator by nature. I always laugh and when people are talking to me, so tell me about yourself. I said, don't tell anybody. I'm really not an AVP or an executive director. I'm an educator by nature. And I was. And I loved teaching. I do a lot of consulting on uh, different uh, proponents of periop nursing. And I realized all this education that I was doing. And it was the right thing. It was feeding the minds of, of nurses um, in all categories of nursing but I couldn't be that change agent. And I think my aha moment was when uh, I was at one of my hospitals for about 20 something years, and most of my career was an educator there. I, I had the opportunity to move into management. Now it was a step down because I was a systems uh, co- coordinator for service lines and technologies. And I went ahead and embraced that and took a step down and became a clinical manager. I realized my aha moment was getting into management. I had the knowledge in the base and my, my hand, my fingers were always on the pulse of what the staff level was feeling, but now I could be that manager that could make the difference. And with that, I grew in from clinical manager to director to uh, executive director. And I think at Emory, I had nine ambulatory centers, a director of patient care practice, uh, to um, an assistant vice president. 
and I've got directors under me. And, and it's funny because the director works for me now. The first thing I noticed about her, she's amazing. She, I asked her to do some honest to goodness, it's done before. I don't tell her, I ask. It's done before I realize it. And I said, um, I said to her, her name is Erin. I said, Erin, I said, you could really be me. And she gave me the highest compliment she could ever give me. She goes, I want to learn how you engage with people, how you, how you, and what you do with the relationships here to get people to do and, and take our team to the next journey. So it wasn't about getting all the data, making sure the equipment's there, making sure the capital budget's done, the operational budget. It was the human connect connectiveness that she was looking to me as a leader to embrace and take her to the next journey. That was my aha moment was going from educator to manager because I never wanted to be a manager. I, I, I can fully, fully appreciate that story and that journey. Um, that's kind of a, a path that I've been on now in my own rights, uh, Vanjie, just looking for different leaders and mentors, not, not to put them on a pedestal, so to speak, but looking at how they conduct themselves, the characteristics, again, those, those principles, um, the process they use to lead and to communicate and trying to see you know, the different things that I can kind of pull into my own personality and my own, you know, day-to-day functioning. So mm-hmm. I, I truly appreciate hearing that. Um, and, and shout out to Erin just for kind of being in a similar mindset. I'm sure she's going to fly high when it's her time. So that's, oh, that's really impressive absolutely. story. We did a, a, a piece on her in my professional organization. We have 43,000 members and it was healthcare heroes. And I talk about how she was a hero to me and what she's done for me in the last three months. So while she thinks I'm coaching her, she's coaching me too. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's a great point too. Great mentees actually push mentors to be better. So um, absolutely. Wonderful. Love it. Uh, Vanjie, next question I have for you. What are some of the current changes taking place across the healthcare industry that you're personally excited about? And what role, um, I'll even tweak this one a little bit, but what, what role do quality professionals, but even more closely to you, um, what role do perioperative professionals also play with promoting or supporting its longevity? I think some of the biggest trend um, is is a preventative te- um, medicine, a telemedicine that we've been talking about this for, as you well know, for over 10 years, but patients do better at home. I think we're still going to be driving cost down and you you hear some leveling between reimbursement with ambulatory centers and uh, what we call uh, hospital-based departments and what's going to happen there. We knew uh, 10 years ago that the trends were going to be to outpatient with 80% of our procedures being outpatient, but now we're doing much more complex procedures. And the question that drives hospitals is we know we get pay for performance, which we keep our quality measures high, which are non-negotiable here because you're going to get penalized and not that you're only doing it for reimbursement, but we're looking at cost reimbursement that's going to change dramatically when we take these inpatients and move them to outpatients. Dramatic cost means it's going to go down, but we have to do the right thing by our patients. The other thing is the technology that is so expensive, whether it's the robotic technology for joints. I mean, we're talking just in a software upgrade of over $300,000, but we do a tremendous amount of orthopedics where I came from. And here, um, is it going to make that big of a clinical difference in our patients? Um, 
a little bit, but 300000 with a $15,000 a month maintenance contract on it, probably not, but patients want quality. And to them, that is quality. And that's what's going to drive that. So I think the driver is, is a quality is quality metrics. Uh, there's report cards that are now very open. Uh, they're going to look at your infection rate. Um, hospitals are rated by leapfrog and physicians are rated, rated too. And they look at that. They don't look whether he's got a great bedside banner. They're going to be uh, driven by what are the quality outcomes of that individual. And I've watched that in patient selections. I've watched them select a certain physician, and, and, and then all of a sudden they do a drastic change, and they want another physician. And just the only common denominator I can see is we got better quality outcomes with physician A than physician B. So definitely in healthcare, qualities are drivers. Um, we've got multiple accreditation organizations, not just Joint Commission, Quad A, AAA, and we are DMV, uh, which is process-driven. They're not going to come in and look at, did you have a spot of blood on your instruments? They want to know what your process is to get that spot of blood off. Again, a quality measure. And everybody thinks perioperative nursing is very mechanical. Oh, oh nurses just count instruments and sponges. But we have key performance indicators that we are held to, which drive outcomes, better outcomes for our patients. Perfect. And I, I appreciate that. And again, that, that's been my experience from all of the time that I've spent working with ORs and cath lab teams. Um, you know, anything procedural, um, the focus on quality has been just top notch. Um, let me let me kind of go off script with this question, Angie, but, you know, back during the last kind of uh, engagement that the two of us were really collaborating on, had been right in the midst of COVID and looking at the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare organizations and how that impacted perioperative areas specifically. Mm -hmm. um, just curious to get your, your insights on this, but what's the outlook? Um, hopefully as you know, the world is starting to come out of the pandemic now, are hospitals mm -hmm. ramping back up? Are things kind of getting caught up from a procedural point of view or uh, any any lessons learned that um, healthcare organizations may have learned in terms of is issues or situations like the pandemic and how they respond with their surgical suites? Yeah, COVID is still uh, up there, but COVID is just an example. It's not going to be isolated. There's going to be something behind that. And I think sometimes we got a little cavalier. I think my perspective will always wear masks in the hospital because we, people are compromised there. But from the perspective of COVID and its relationship to what that's done with surgery, I have to brag at my last institution is that, and it was a level one trauma center, we were very careful in how we selected surgery. We didn't say an absolute, we're not gonna do any outpatients and anybody that has a positive or, or what we call a, a PUI, patient under investigation, we're not gonna do it. Because I think you've seen today, and I've read it in Becker's, that there have been misdiagnoses because things have been put off such as screening colonoscopies and, and breast biopsies that give you definitive diagnosis. And now these patients have a prolonged stage of, of, of cancer. So um, the, the hot, last hospital we did, we looked at what the clinical efficacy could result in. So we did i.e. elective cases. What is the true definition of elective cases? So I think they did an amazing job. We had a collaborative approach. I had a representative of each type of surgeon where we made a good clinical decision. Uh, and we didn't just say no electives. 
patient had a kidney stone, anybody who's had kidney stones know there's significant pain associated with that. We didn't want the patient to hurt. We immediately went ahead and treated them. But it's elective surgery. So it took a different perspective on what elective meant. Post-status COVID, we're not really post-status. We are not at the magnitude of impact of COVID patients. So we can't be so cavalier to let every patient in. Uh, the screening is done very methodically, and we still keep our standards up in the segregation of those patient populations, no differently than you would do tuberculosis or anything else. Have we seen a trend where the case volume has gone up? Oh, my gosh, yes. But the impact is we got relaxed in our resources, and now we don't have the resources to take care of that influx of patients. You've also got situations where it forced healthcare workers out of the workforce, especially if your baby boomers were 33% of the workforce in healthcare, they retired, then that left no resources to take care of the surge as we ramp back up to normalcy. So you can imagine the slippery slope and then the younger nurses, when you got the dollar now because of the shortage, we're like moving bonds on a chessboard and they'll follow where they're getting huge sign on bonuses and everything else just to keep uh, the stability of the existing uh, of an organization to treat our patients. So it's it's gotten to be very, very complex. It's mainly the impact of COVID to the workforce because now we can't accommodate the surge. Right. No, I, um, I, I, again, appreciate you sharing some insights, especially for an off script question on such a big, you know, that that is literally a, a industry changing and kind of organizational changing question, just the impact that we've seen over the last you know year and a half or whatever since COVID. But um, again, I, I just recalled many of our conversations as we were partnered together and um, just figured I'd throw that one out. So a perfect reply, um, really good insights. And again, I, I hope that our audience members can take some of those insights and, and look internally to their organizations to understand what their perioperative teams might be fighting now. Again, fingers crossed as the world starts to, to normalize a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be probably one of our biggest challenges. All right, perfect. Um, well, and let me move that. It, it kind of connects a little bit into this next question, but um, Vanjie, what is it that the healthcare industry itself can also do to become a more attractive place for talented healthcare professionals, quality professionals to come in, start their careers and grow their careers throughout healthcare? Okay. Um, I, I think we've got a big challenge. Never in the history of the workforce have we ever had five generations in the workforce practice. From the traditionalists, there's still those in there, very small, about 2% of the general population of healthcare. And then you got the boomers and of course the Xers and the millennials, and I think it's Y. So you've got a diversity in generations that we've all been raised very differently, which means our value systems are different. And that's going to be a clash, a clash of the generations and learning how to relate to each other. Um, and and you, you've got things that are important to certain generations, not it's all generational, but you also got cultural changes. But our younger generation is wants resilience. They don't want to work to live. They want to uh, live to work. They want to work to live. So there's a, a different kind of balance for them. And if you and they are like 33 to 45 percent of the population of the workforce in healthcare, which means if you're in a, in that management position, you have to balance their resilience. 
you've got to keep them strong and you've got to balance their home life just as much as their work life. And their work life, you, you, you get creative. It's not, all right, you're working Monday through Friday, uh, 7 to 3. No, we don't do that anymore. We do 12-hour shifts, 10-hour shifts. We pay people just to do straight call. So resilience and balance of life is very important to the workforce today, and that's going to attract them. They, they want to get home to their families. Generational understanding, because we bring different value systems in, and one of the hottest topics uh, at my level of the American Nurses Association, and I'm actually president-elect for the Association of Perioperative Nurses, is the DEI, diversity, inclusion, um, all that, um, in, in, in all have to be considered as, as the world is changing. It's such a hot spot right now. No, oh, fantastic. And, you know, that that's a conversation I've been in on with many healthcare executives over the last maybe two or three months, Vanjie, is, is everything you just said, the resilience piece, especially with many of our younger professionals, um, the focus for diversity, equity, um, all of the and above. Those are those are hot topics. And especially when so much of the industry has been working from home for the last year. Um, that seems to be, you know, one of the, the conversations at the top of the list. So how do you balance all of those needs and, and have them set up in a work environment that healthcare is not used to yet? So um, perfect. They are not used to it. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, Jarvis, I think a lot of managers still don't understand. They understand diversity. Very simple definition. We've been around it a while, but they don't understand the equity and the inclusion part of that and how important that is to put all three pieces together in this new workforce. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm working with a team here in Georgia where I am the chair of our diversity and inclusion committee and just doing the research. I mean, as an African-American male, you know, it's still, I'm, I'm having to learn what these definitions mean. And I found a great paper that identified over 33 ways to define diversity and inclusion and you know, uh -huh. so now how do you how do you strategize for so many different, you know, variables? But um, but that that's the challenge. That's why we're doing it the work is. that we do. Yeah, so, very important in the workforce today. Absolutely. Perfect. Great mindsets, great insights. And, and Vanji, you're absolutely doing a fantastic job. I, I want to move us into a part of the show now that I call the two minute drill. And it's kind of my take on a rapid fire Q&A, but just want to check and see how you're feeling, see if you're ready to rock and roll. Okay, let's rock and roll, Jarvis. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, Vanjie, the, the next question I have for you is something of a two-parter. I'd love for you to first tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best, then also share with us how do you inspire in your organization? I think um, uh, one of the things that drives me in what I do, and, and it makes a difference, it's when I, kind of an example is when I first interviewed with this organization, and they said, we are so glad and I didn't mean as cocky or egotistical that uh, when I say this, they said that you came to work for us. You know, I think sometimes that's a script that we use and I'm not trying to be pessimistic there. But I said to them, I said, I say this respectfully, but I also picked you too. Because at this point, I wanted to be associated with quality. This hospital was so important to maintain its magnet status. That was huge. I love the fact that it was a leapfrog at a B and moving very quickly to an A. I loved its patient outcomes um, measures and where its top box was. So 
what drives me today being, a, uh, you know, if I, if I could be so graciously called a leader is a purpose. I have a, a purpose. It's not driven by monetary money. Not that you're going to work for free. I always say, you know, I'm independently wealthy. Yes. And I do nursing for a hobby. That is not true. It, it is a purpose that drives me for what I do today. So I am definitely pushed by a purpose. I'm very um, into connectivity and people. I don't know what I do without my people around me because my people inspire me to do my best. Perfect. I love it. And uh, Vanjie, what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? I, I can remember a long time ago, she was a director. I'm going to say this is 30 something years ago. And, and I said, you know what? I never see my manager out there. Here, here's the young nurse talking in my early 20s. Why is she out there helping us? And Sarah Huff said to me, Name's not changed again. She said, Vanjie, each one of us have a piece of responsibility to make sure the job is done. And if your manager is out there doing what you have been delegated to do, we're never going to get this train moving. So I, I think we have to respect each other's position and what we do. As my young manager came to me and said, um, my team doesn't think I do anything. I said, yes, yeah, an easy fix. And I, she says, we know you do, Katrina. I said, you absolutely do. But perception to them is reality. And what you can do is just be available, be their barrier buster, be the person that removes their obstacles, get engaged with them, maybe go in the room and help move a patient from the OR table to back to the stretcher. That is the engagement and that purpose. So I, I think it's engagement and not defining roles of what we think people should do is trying to understand them, but also understand that even if it's a perception among the individuals that you have taken um, on to, to guide is that their perception is real. So. Very fantastic. Um, Vanjie, this should be fun since you're still fairly new in your role, but if you could trade jobs with anyone in your organization, with whom would it be and why? Um, I always say, because sometimes when they see that my background and, and the different roles, um, you get this. And I'm not saying this, that this organization had that. It was the fear of being a one to be a COO or a CNO. I, I don't think I would choose anything but what I'm doing. Um, I, I love being over perioperative services. And I didn't want to just be over surgery. And I can remember in my early 30s going to my director at that time where I had every, and I, I had blind, I was kind of like nose blind, that commercial on TV. I was blind to realize that the services that I was over only would enhance my perioperative background. I was over interventional radiology and uh, radiology and CT and ultrasound procedural nursing. But I remember saying to her, I want to be back in perioperative nursing. And she couldn't give it to me because the positions were already filled. And that's where I stepped outside my level of comfort and decided to become um, a director over periop services, best move I ever made. Um, but in short, I did learn from being in the other areas, but I don't want to be anything else but over surgery. And maybe one day be a staff nurse again. I don't know. But I do love perioperative nursing. Well, that is that is a perfectly acceptable answer. And and really the take home there that I got and, and hopefully communicates over to the folks that plug in with this conversation, um, follow your passion. That's that's really what I took from that. You knew what you wanted to be and that's what you push for. And, and you've made yeah. a phenomenal career path with it. So 
Next Thank question. You. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Next question I have for you, Vanjie. Uh, would love if you could share a personal habit that contributes to your success when leading quality initiatives. Well, I don't know whether it's a good habit. You know, some people will find, you know, you can take your habits that are very positive and you can go all the way the, to the end where you're not following a balance. But I, I'm, I'm very much one. And, and I, I, you know, it kind of brought to my attention when I was at a meeting, a, a CEO symposium in Washington, D.C., a couple of days ago, and I've always, you know, I'm meeting the CEO of my national organization, and I, I'm downstairs 10 minutes, and I always text him. I'm in the lobby waiting to go into the classroom, and she says, well, one thing I've learned about you, you're always on time. And sure, that defined um, me to her in what kind of personality. I always close the loop. I do what I say I'm going to do. If I can't do it, um, I, I, I tell them I can't do it. I can do it in two weeks or I can do it a month or maybe I can't do it at all. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but I've always, um, believed that, you know, it's okay to say you can't do something, but do what you say you're going to do. Close the loop. The flip side of that, that hurts me is my expectations. A lot of times are that of the individuals that I manage. And I have to step back and say to myself, they are not you and don't expect them to follow up with you. And maybe you can help them. Is, is this not good for you right now? Maybe we can wait and do this later, or maybe you don't understand that. So I always leave that open-ended at this point to try to balance the two ends. Fantastic. And next question I have for you, what is a go-to website or, or mobile application that helps you execute on the work that you lead? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, um, being president-elect for National AORN, my own professional organization, obviously, you know, it's abundance of resources for perioperative nurses. So I, I love AORN. You know, I'm passionate about uh, making a difference in nursing altogether. I try to stay involved, not as much because I'm so focused on AORN right now, is the um, AONL, which is the um, executive leadership in, in nursing because it helps to enhance the leadership qualities uh, that maybe will supplement AORN. And then another website I go to to watch trends in healthcare nationally is Becker's. All right, perfect. And that, that aligns perfectly even with the next question that I'm going to ask, which is, uh, Vanjie, I'd love if you could share a professional society and professional conference that will be evaluated. But um, just again, Vanjie, I, I know as you started to highlight there, um, with that last question, that you have a great presence with associations. So um, and I'd also maybe love to tag on just in general, what's your thoughts about not just paying dues to an association, but getting involved in, and how have you um, benefited from really getting involved with the, the groups that you've worked with? Uh, that's probably one of the most complex initiatives we have within my national organization. And um, being president-elect of the Association of Perioperative Nurses, because remember I said periop, it is not just interop. Um, this association has now reached out beyond the boundaries of just the United States nationally. It is an international society. One of the most difficult things is encouraging people to, to join and what benefits they have out of membership. And we talked about earlier in your questions to me was the aha moment. And I was sitting there with the board of directors. We can't seem to figure out why people aren't joining. And, I, and, uh, and we all came together to the conclusion is that we're not understanding the value systems of the people in the workforce now. They are working harder. 
than probably I did coming up the the realms of nursing. Uh, there's very limited time, especially if you're in a big city, to even get home and be with your family. So there's that resilience part. So how do you show that your professional organization is of value to join? So the big question is, is what do they need to fulfill them? Do, do we need more virtual meetings? Do we need more um, connectivity? We have to look at a different way to serve the new population of professionals that are coming in there. And it is, it's not just about ticking a number. Uh, well, we got 43,000 members. Well, we have 44,000 members. It's about 43,000 engaged members. So the, the big delta is we put a task force together to ask the why are they not joining? What is so different about the people today in our profession that we are not meeting their needs? We could talk about how important it is. You keep up with standards. You keep up with quality. And they go, well, I can read a book. I can get contact hours online. It's more the why of what stimulates them. And I think we were missing that. We were telling them what we could give them, but it may not be what they wanted. No, that's, those are some of the truer words. I'm, I'm working with three, four different um, associations right now. And for all the different programs and things that we try to put on, the number one question that we always come back to are is around what do, what do the members want? What's the engagement? Um, you know, how do we keep them engaged? Especially again over the last year or so when things have just been so non-normal. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. absolutely, I, I love that. Any any other highlights? I mean, you share so many AORN, AONL. Um, any other groups to highlight for for our listeners to plug in, especially from that that surgical services side of the world? I I think for the listeners, the way I may not be a member of because I'm a member of three different organizations. My my specialty is lasers, so I certify in lasers, and I wouldn't. I'm not saying I wouldn't recommend them, but it's so highly specialized. I say if you have a specialty, get involved with your specialty along with AORN and AONL. You got leadership, you want all peri-op services, that's AORN. But if you're a PACU nurse, stay involved with your, your PACU association or CRNA with your specialty, because that helps you keep up with the trends and what's happening with your specialty. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Vanji, if you could recommend one book to our quality people, what would it be and why? If I if, repeat that again, Jarvis, I apologize. No, no, you're fine. Um, if you could recommend one book to our quality people, what would it be and why? Oh, my gosh. Um, I have to get the, the book and let me look at that right now. In fact, our CEO, <laughs> I went, oh, no, he's making us read it. And notice I say making us read it. And then after I started reading it, I'm actually practicing that um, with um with my, my leaders here, uh, and they quite didn't understand what that is, and it's called The Power of Moments by Chip Heath and Dan Heath, and it talks about a lot of times um, how we focus on moments that are intuitive to most of us, the birth of your first child, a wedding, the graduation college, but are those really your wow moments that set your trajectories in life? And you have to think back. And I asked my husband that. I said, can you think of a wow moment? I was trying to explain that it's not the normal scheduled events, Christmas or anything like that, scheduled things that occur in most of our lives. And he talked about how he was in Boy Scouts. And 
he did not pass or he failed some kind of badge. I, I'm not a Boy Scout or Girl Scout, so I have no idea um, the details of that. And he called his dad and said, you know, I'm quitting. I'm not doing this. And because he was embarrassed that he failed. That was a wow moment for him because what it did, it turned him around and his father pushed him into doing this. And he ended up exceeding that year at camp. Okay, that was a wow moment that impacted him and changed his trajectory at life. That it's not about failing one time. And that, that gave him the, um, the due diligence to forge forward. So it's about wow moments. That what made a difference in your life that turned you that way? Was it the smell of the alcohol, the staunch nursing cap and white hose that made me become a nurse? I, I watched these nurses at DePaul Hospital making a difference in people's lives. And that was my wow moment. I still remember it today. I think it's the power of wow moments. All right. Perfect. And and shout out to your CEO for making you guys read it. <laughs> making um, us, we've got to do skits, Jarvis. So that's uh, going to be quite comical coming up. Oh, uh, make sure you guys catch on catch it on videos. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we are. Uh, Vanji, we are right there. Very last question I have for you today, but um, this is a personal favorite because I'm going to try to get you to reflect on your past while you also look forward to your future. So let's say that you're able to send one text message to yourself 10 years into the past, one text message to yourself 10 years into the future. Take a second and think about it, but what would you communicate in each one of those messages? I think I would text myself for the future and it's still been good for me to lead with your heart logically. Remember, I learned that. So I would text myself and say, keep that trait, Banji, but uh, keep that, that assessment that you and I talked about where you have to go, sometimes you have to go with your gut, but you also got to go with your head at the same time. So lead with your heart and your head, the balance of the few. For the future, uh, I think I would text myself, um, like I said earlier, love what you do and do what you love. I don't think I'd change anything. I don't believe people are made to retire. Um, I say this all the time. I watch some of my nurses uh, that have worked for me at 75 and they go, why is she still doing this? And, and again, I don't want this to be biblical, but it, did, did God really mean for us all to retire? If you still love what you do and, it, and you know you have a purpose in making a difference, I would text myself to keep doing what you're doing. Love what you do and do what you love. Perfect. Well, Vanjie, I, I can absolutely say that, again, just my, my time with you, I, I know you're living both of those text messages right now. So um, really appreciate the way that you lead, leading with your heart and just putting yourself out there to um, not only just be the best perioperative leader, but to inspire others that you're working with to bring their best to work every day. Um, those have been my experiences with you. So I appreciate that. I absolutely appreciate you just giving me an hour of your day to jump on this podcast. Um, Vanjie, you know, before I let you go, I'd love if you could share with our quality people just a parting piece of advice. Um, share with us how can we follow or connect with you on social media, and then we'll officially sign off. Uh, connect with uh, social. I love social media. You know, uh, if you talk about Facebook or anything else, I mean, that's how I definitely, um, you know, keep up with my grown kids there. But uh, I, I think it's important. Um, I hope I'm answering this question correctly. So uh, if I am not, please let me know um, if I'm in the wrong direction here. But I believe in um, clarifying our values. Know what your best days are and take your values so they play into the satisfaction that you receive on that day. 
um, and, and share it with other people. Make sure your role fits with your values and, and contributes to society for me. That's important to me to make a difference, whether it's the guy that is cutting my grass right now and, you know, caring whether he's smoking a cigarette and coughing. That sounds crazy. As a nurse and he goes, please, Clark, don't do that. Know the meaning and purpose of your work. This helps you provide directions to others. Um, and, and you can do that, again, through involvement in a professional organization and your social e- uh, media. And remind people why their work is important, because we are the sum of many parts here. Uh, that makes a difference in their lives, as your life, and the way in the lives of others. I'm, I'm a big belief uh, that allows me to talk to the heart of people. The, you know, in short, I, I, people should develop what we call a purpose statement, and that purpose statement helps you to communicate. Uh, to the individuals that you want to create a difference. And that purpose statement helps you to look at yourself sometimes. Be sure to balance personally your work demands and your personal life, the resilience. Uh, We can't put my value systems as a baby boomer and say, well, she should be working and she should be doing that. We have to understand others. Uh, Cultivate people that share your basic values. And partner with somebody with futuristic talents and ideas because that will help you energize yourself. And most important, accept the values of other people that may be different from our own without being judgmental. I think you can do that by staying engaged in your professional organization, staying connected with you, with people uh, and all types of people, not just in healthcare. And I think that's what we're doing today, Jarvis, is um, giving a little piece of ourselves to everybody else out there. And we will get just as much in return. I absolutely agree with you, um, Vanjie. I, I think that was some of the best parting pieces of advice that um, anyone's ever kind of brought to the podcast. So um, absolutely <laughs> loved you. it. And I, if you're okay with it, I'll, I'll include your LinkedIn link within the podcast itself. So as people plug in with this conversation, um, hopefully they will be inspired to connect with you to, you know, maybe hopefully book a few minutes just to pick your brains and um, just allow you to continue to inspire them and, and to help them develop that purpose statement. Um, that is something I do believe in also, just again, to settle around our own personal principles. Um, so absolutely love it and appreciate it, Angie. Thank you. Thank you, Jarvis. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and thank you for choosing me. Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you for the time. And, and to our quality people, everyone, everywhere, uh, thank you all for listening, plugging in with this show and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and Angie, and we're signing off. Bye-bye, everybody. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share additional resources, access to our QI community, and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.